Hello and welcome back to Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe. We are kicking off with season two after a great year last year with, with tons of guests. Uh, I'm Tom Sherrington and this is Emma. Hello, Emma. Hello, lovely to be back with you, Tom. So nice to be back. <laughs> um, I'm absolutely delighted that we're kicking off season two with um, Nimish Ladd, who's come to join us, man of many talents. But we're going to be talking to him a lot tonight about his new book, um, which is based around Shimamura's Marge model. So welcome, Nimish. Do you want to tell people a little bit about your kind of educational journey to here, what you do? Oh, oh gosh, yes, it, it is quite a journey. Um, so um, I'm a, a curriculum research lead at um, um, an educational trust uh, across the Midlands in the UK. We have 11 secondary schools within that trust and about five primaries with, with a couple of um, juniors and infant schools mixed in there as well. The, the work I do with them three days a week is, is around curriculum and research and, and how research-informed pedagogy can inform curriculum thinking, which is which is a wonderful job to have and such wonderful conversations to have as well. As, as part of my role, the other days of the week, I work as a vice principal for, for curriculum assessment within a school, Wren School in Wellingborough, um, which is actually the school I went to as a pupil. So it's a, it's a really exciting thing to work in that same community, to work with the same parents and, and the, same, um, the, the same sort of stakeholders that you would do when I was a child. So, 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 exci- so exciting to, to work in this, this climate, and especially at this time, um, but, uh, but yeah, a very journey, an excited journey, but such a just a great profession, such a great thing to do. Well, that's great. We're, no, we're really thrilled. And I, I've had the, the real pleasure of working with you on, on this book that we're going to talk about. But I'm, I'm going to start with something else, if, if you don't mind, because I, I just think it's worth, that you're, because the reason why I asked you to do it, which is that um, uh, you just, we, we, I met you at a research ed event and you're on the stage and there was some whole gag going on about, about your cookie <laughs> and um yeah you're on the stage with some sort of you know big hitters and uh, it was it was just fantastic and I just thought saw, saw you and talk and, and heard you speaking and everything so I just thought you sound like someone who's just a brilliant communicator about education and really passionate about it and that really came across to me but we also I think all three of us were recently at Research head in London. Indeed, we were. What, what, what's, what's your feeling about that? You know, why, why do you feel? Why do you get involved with those sort of things in your own time at the weekends and stuff? You know, why do you do all of that? I think it, it's so important for for us to to hear um, other voices within the profession. I think part of what can happen when when you're working by yourself on, on areas and, and you're trying to develop your own expertise is is quite often you're getting this this closed door sort of thinking and working in your own little silo. And I think. Part of the power of a movement like Research Head, which I find so so invigorating and, and so inspiring, is, is the ability to be able to work together in communities and to think in different ways and have your own thought processes challenged, but also have some of them confirmed. Because sometimes you're on track to do something and you're thinking, I, I don't know whether this is still the right thing to do. I haven't reaped the rewards of this yet. Is that just because I'm not doing it right? Is it because it is the wrong thing to do? And then you hear how someone else is doing that. And you're thinking, do you know what? That's great. It's just small little tweaks. It's just those refinements I need to make to take things further. And, and it's great to have that collaborative spirit and that collaborative atmosphere that comes from a research and the, such a wide range of voices. You know, it, it's great to hear from 
from people that, that I've left the profession and get to work in schools in different ways, uh, left like direct classroom practice in that way. It's great to hear from CEOs of trust and to hear the sort of things that they're working on and some of the thoughts they have. But also it's great to hear from classroom teachers, which and, and their voice is, is championed at these events too. And it was so wonderful to see so many of them at um, the research ed that we were at recently and go and speak to those people in, in person about what they're doing. Yeah, it's great. And so for me, I think you're just like, yeah, I don't know, the whole sort of the, 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 the way you combine the, the reading and the thinking and, and the sharing of ideas with the fact that you're doing it in the, in the job is, is, is brilliant. So look, let's, let's, let's talk about Marge. We just have to do a little book show. Look, come on. I've got mine. I've got lots of these. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I'm in the privileged position of just saying, hey, do you want to write a book? And then just say, off you go then. <laughs> I don't have to do anything until it's finished. And I just sort of say, you know, maybe this or that, but it's it's really great. So let, let, let's just give you the kind of open book uh, question. For people who've never heard of Marge or Arthur Shimamura, <clears throat> you know, what's, the, what, what's it all about? So Marge is uh, a model of learning. It's, it's a, a holistic approach to the learning process. And I was really lucky to, to speak to um, Professor Shimura last year, unfortunately, before he passed away in, in October. Um, and it was really nice to, to unpick um, his thinking around this model of learning that he put together. He's a, he's a scientist, a neuroscientist, he did many sort of um, many sort of experiments and thinking behind how um, people actually remember information, retain information over periods of time. And I think one of the things that he spent uh, a lot of time talking to me about was, was how he used that information and, and matched it with ideas around cognitive science, which he was also passionate about, to, to come up with this idea of the, the link between neuroscience, the, the biology of, of what's happening in the brain, and cognitive science. So, so our theories of cognition. And what came out of that was March. So so Marge is, is an acronym, spells out the letters uh, M-A-R-G-E, which stands for motivate, attend, relate, generate and evaluate. And essentially, it's, it's his idea of, of what students go through when they are trying to take in information um, and, and learn um, as part of a, of a wider model. So not just focused on actually what is what is the process with how knowledge actually binds together, but, but actually, or, or binds to what is already known, but actually how do we motivate students to, to get to that position to make that happen easier? How do we actually draw attention to the right information? How do we actually um, relate information that we've been given to our own knowledge base? How do we maximize that process? How do we get students to generate new information and therefore potentially improving their memory? And how do we get students to evaluate what they've learned and one of the things I was I was really taken aback by with, within his paper was the idea of how Marge can be used to really refine the quality of uh, some of the learning aids that we we use and how it can be used to, to completely affect the design of them and why some while sometimes we might be thinking well this isn't having the effect that that we want it to be having Marge can provide a framework to actually do that so it's such a powerful way of, of thinking about the learning process um, but but actually, in many ways, it is that gateway into further thinking about how human cognition works and, and how students learn. I absolutely loved reading it, Nimish. And do you know what I really liked about one bit of it? Because you, obviously you've got all of the overview from your experience in secondary, but you'd spoken to so many people um, from primary, from early years, to, to really sort of put those examples in that this was not just for a particular phase in the sector this was for everybody and I found it so useful reading all of the examples you put in there but the thing that I really liked you know when you're talking about when 
you used to think you were doing it right, but actually you were making it more confusing. Do you just want to talk about that bit there? Because I think it's so important that when you read a book, it doesn't necessarily just present everything that's right. Actually, this from the practitioner's point of view, I, I, I thought I was doing it, but I wasn't. Do you want to just kind of expand on that bit for everybody? Yeah, I, I, I think it's such a powerful thing to do because everybody through every process they've, they've done in life will, will have those moments where they think they're doing something the right way. Um, and then all of a sudden they'll start to unwind things and think, why, why in the world was I doing that? Why did I do this, then this, then this? Actually, I could bypass part of the process and do this. Actually, if I was teaching in this way, it would make it less confusing or, or whatever it may be. You know, one of the things that I, I really reflect on is the fact that teaching is a reflective um, practitioner, that, that we have to um, so a reflective profession we have to reflect on on what we've done and that the whole phrase that used to be bounced around when when I was doing my PGC and, and when I was in NQT in, in 2006 about being reflective practitioners it, it's something that really resonated with me and as and actually re- resonates within this process because if we think about it that the whole point of the, the end part of this process about evaluating is well actually are, are things doing what you expected them to do uh, have you learned what you expected to learn and actually that's something that's really struck with me throughout my entire career and whenever now I, I look back at, you know, why certain things haven't gone as well as I'd wanted to do, be that a lesson or be that staff training, I always reflect on this model to make me think, well, actually, you know, is it that some of the some of the things I'm doing, I've, I've over-confused things, I've made them too, too elaborate. Is it that I could I haven't directed staff's attention to the right area, what I want them to pay attention to? Mm-hmm. Um, because it is such a fine balance between all these areas that we can actually if, if we're not careful, overcomplicate something that in, in its very nature is a, a simplistic model. And yes, there's so much that sits behind it, but the starting point has to be simple because if we go too deep into it, we're going to overcomplicate things. And I think that's why when I was writing that, that bit about how I took took um, students away from what I wanted them to actually learn about, you know, I was, I was focusing on some really explicit things that I wanted them to learn about, yet by trying to motivate them, I'd, I'd taken them away from that. I think that's such a powerful thing to consider when we're doing things like staff training, when we're doing things like having conversations with people. You know, sometimes it is in, in computer science, they talk about this idea of, of, of abstraction, like really focusing on the key and cutting the fluff around it. And I think that's sometimes really, really important when we're trying to consider um, this idea of, of models of learning and, and what we're delivering within lessons. Mm. You're listening to Mind the Gap, presented by John Cat Educational. Over the past six decades, John Cat has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or at johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. It's so interesting when you think about it in detail. I mean, I, 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 mean, I love the original uh, Marge booklet. I mean, I think it's worth saying to people that, you know, I mean, I think we, we both encountered it I think I love, this is one of my sort of favourite sort of Twitter sharing stories, really, which is that uh, Shimamura published this free ebook, and you can just Google it, and it's just, you can read the whole thing. It's only about fifty pages. And then um, Dan Winningham, who obviously a cognitive scientist, knew about him and say, "Hey, everybody, Shimamura's just made this amazing book." And then Ollie Lovell, who even says does a podcast, and then he does a sort of sort of summary of stuff I've seen on Twitter recently, and he said. Uh, you know, uh, Dan Winningham just shared this free ebook, and none of us have heard of Shimamura at this point. And then, and that's that's how I read it. So it's like, and so, and then I just thought, oh my god, it's so great! Motivate, attend, relate, generate, evaluate. I, I've used it 
nearly every training session I've done since. It's such, such a mm. it's such a useful frame. And how did how did you yourself come across? Was it similar type of discovery of Shimamura? Yeah, so so I saw the the tweets like bouncing around on Twitter. I, I saw a bit of I think in, originally it would have been Dan Willingham's share, which is when I started to think, oh, you know, I, I'd read um, you know a lot of Dan Willingham's work, and I was thinking it'd be, it'd be great to see the sort of stuff that he, he was sharing. And I, I think I picked it up on one of his shares, and I, I printed it out and I had it on the side like to, to read. And I remember like one Christmas, I believe it was, it was just sat there on the side. I, you know, everyone had fallen asleep after Christmas dinner or something like that. And I think I was just like, let, let me just see what's what's there. And it was downstairs on the, the coffee table and on the, a little shelf there. So I thought I'd pick it up and have a little flick through. And it, it just resonated with me instantly. So many parts of it. Things like um, why, why the, the model of a tour guide is such an important thing to consider when we are um, considering directing the attention of, of, of students. And it was re- the fact that that resonated with me so much was earlier that year. I'd spoken to my staff about how actually when we deliver the curriculum, we should be thinking a bit like a tour guide model of it. You know, how do we actually direct the attention of our of, of our um, of our uh, of our students? How do we actually um, try to knit together that story in the way that a good tour guide does of and therefore the narrative of what we're actually trying to teach students? Um, and that was the piece that really resonated with me more than anything else. And so, so when I read that, I thought. This fits with my logic of, of what learning is all about um, and the way that I want to approach curriculum. So it, it was, a, it was a, a real moment of resonance for me that drew me to that paper. And then the, the more I read of it, the more I read around it, the more I went down the, the holes in terms of research papers that they attached to, the more it made sense to me, definitely. And I've seen you deliver your, your session about curriculum as a tour guide as well. <laughs> Yes. Way back at Sarah Mullins Book Lodge. And I don't know, Tom, whether you've seen one of Nimish's amazing tour guide spreadsheets. Have you ever seen one of these? No. <laughs> yeah. <that's- laughs> He genuinely lives his life as a tour guide. <laughs> I, I don't get the chance to, to obviously do so many of those right now in the world that we're actually in. But, but I am itching to actually put one of those back together when, when I get to go abroad. Saying that, for the summer, I did put a spreadsheet together to say week by week what I had to do. But but it's the best way to plan, as we know, to make it really clear every week. You know, you're beginning to like... relate. You, you organise the the concepts. It's so interesting. I love I, I love how um. So you might I feel like I'm a sort of a bystander watching ideas flow around, and I don't you know I don't teach in my own lessons anymore. But I the, I I had chats with um Rich Kent Richard Kennett who who um is a history specialist and uh, he he has this brilliant thing it's in our walkthroughs book uh, of uh, curriculum as uh he's going it's going to be in the volume 3 which is sort of coming out next year curriculum as a mu- museum as a as a metaphor it's really great so he basically sort of talks about how you've got to decide what the theme of the museum is like it's a museum about something but then you choose what all the rooms focus on so you don't just have a mix mishmash each room has a focus, but then within each room, you need to select the artifacts which convey the message, and and you have to be selective. You can't just chuck a load of stuff in there and hope people make sense of it. You, you, a good museum will have a select, a quite a sometimes a quite a small selection, but very well chosen things which draw you in, tell a story, and then and then as a, a, a suggested route around the museum. Even though there are other ways that you can sometimes just meander, so it's like. That to me sounds just like what you're talking about. And that go, that's what Claire Seeley says in the research. Yes. Is she talks about a carefully curated introduction to the world. And that it, 
about that curation, isn't it? About mm. it's your museum rooms or your tour guide or whatever it is. It's that the importance of curation. I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, think you've seen, Emma, I think you've seen, Emma, the, the presentation where I talk about my daughter, where I took her around yeah. Harry Potter, which, which I reference in the book. That, as I took her uh, around Harry Potter Studios, that, that's where things really started to click for me, that, that sense that actually if you clearly direct someone's attention and, and you take them through the narrative, things will start to make sense. You know, if, if I can talk to a four-year-old about the, the difference between practical effects and CGI, and why one is more preferable than another in, in terms of her own preference. There's a mag, there's a magic magical power in that that, that yeah. shows the power of actually that model of thinking about curriculum. And therefore, it, it's been transformative in her own thinking at, at my own school about what curriculum should actually be like. Yeah, and you, I, I like the way in the book as well you talk about how to carry that thinking on through ships at home as well, and about re, revamping homework to fit in with this model as well. And for people who haven't read it or don't know what it's about, I think it would be really interesting if you explain that kind of home school link about how you use the Marge model beyond the school gate as well. Yeah, so, so one of the, one of the areas that um, Shimura talks about is the idea of elaborative interrogation or the idea of elaborate, elaborating on what you know. And one of my greatest frustrations at the sort of time I was reading the paper, we, we were having our, our parents' evenings for year 11 and year 10, and I'd always sort of open... You know, the parents even conversation in some sort of way you know how much you talk about science at home or how much you talk about maths at home and you know students would always say yeah a bit and then the, the parents would say no no nothing and, and actually it, it made me think are we actually providing the service we need for the parents where the parents can have conversations with the students and actually for the students are we actually motivating them to have the conversations with their parents and showing them the benefits of actually talking about subjects at home so it's, it's about skilling people up and tooling people up, essentially, was the idea. So it was the whole idea of essentially just putting together a, a series of four or five questions on certain topic areas where they could just literally have a discussion at the dinner table about a specific area. And what that meant is that students are constantly going through that, that process of rehearsal over certain key topics. And, and by talking about it at home and having a tool to compare it to to check that it's right, Parents could, could really engage in conversations with their students about learning, but also it's a key part of the, the learning process. It's, it's part of the generate, the, that whole relate, generate, evaluate cycle that, that, that Shimura talks about. And I love the way that that, that that is talked about within the paper about if you talk about it and if you think about it, you're more likely to remember it. So let's find a way to make that happen at home. And it was such a powerful thing to read that. It really made me think I need to refine how we do that. Where it all came from, though, really, was my sister and her group of friends um, all were studying A-level physics. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get to teach her for A-level physics. But what she'd randomly do to me every now and again was just send me a message about an A-level physics topic. And it was completely out of nowhere. And I have no idea why she's sending me a message about why linear accelerators work in a certain way or why cyclical accelerators work in a certain way. And so I'd get this message at like 9.30 at night thinking, what is this all about? And, and what she was saying, well, if, if, I'm, if I think about it and I write about it, I'm more likely to remember it. And I thought, there we go. That's exactly what it's about. And I thought, well, I can tap into this and use this idea, yeah. therefore, within, within my own practice. That's so funny. It's like when we last, in our season one, we introduced Patrice Bain um, from, from her home in, U, in the US. And she, she was talking about how, as a, as a primary principal, when she discovered retrieval practice, uh, she, she, her parents were thanking her for, for helping them 
uh, to support their children because they had something they could do, like help, you know, quizzing my students is making them better at learning. And it's and I don't even have to be an expert because you've given me the resources to quiz them from. And it also engages me in knowing what they're learning about. So rather than this horrible conversation that parents have, which is, what did you do at school today? Nothing. Have you got any homework? No. <laughs> it's like, um, here's a thing which comes home to you by email. Hey, apparently you've been doing this topic. Let me ask you some questions. So it's brilliant. Uh, it's such a really obvious thing. I'm going to ask, I want to ask you something else now, though, because I feel like I want to just, because um, we could talk about the Marge book. I, mean, I could talk about it forever, but it's sort of, I just love the way you've taken the ideas, just what's so good and developed it. So in people might see, um, like, here, I'm going to show up the screen for people who are, who are watching on the video, there's sort of tables where you've got at the back of each chapter. I, I've, I've said this to you before. I actually reckon you could take the five backs of each chapter and just boom, it's, it's kind of, powerful summaries and you do this thing of saying what it what there are several things that you should do um what to focus on but this is a bit i love be wary of so it's really good to sort of say it's not all sort of um da, 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 bosh neat idea it's here's a subtle idea and don't stuff it up by doing this and i'll give you an example to people listening so in in the, in the chapter on motivate how do we get students to focus their attention by motivating their brain to engage well one of the things you use big picture questions so we when we're learning something we're thinking what are we we've got a frame for this learning it's not just random facts it's we're trying to answer this big question which motivates you to make connections and you're saying be be wary of using narrow questions with simple answers or using questions that are far too broad forcing all kinds of topics in which don't naturally fit and a second example, harness, harness um, aesthetic questions where you get students to say how they feel and what their perspective is, which motivates them to engage. But be wary of accepting the opinions of students over facts within the subject. The personal response should not allow you to guide future learning. The personal response should allow you to guide future learning rather than affect the value. And that's so important, isn't it? You have to be prepared to say, Hey, that's a nice opinion, but actually you're wrong. Or what you know what I mean? But so that's subtle, isn't it? I, I think that's really, really interesting. So have you have you, I mean, that have you had a good response to that? Or is that how you feel that you're influencing your schools? Yes, it, it's I've had, I've had an amazing response to those tables. And lots of people have contacted it, contacted me about it. And where it came from initially was some of the blogs that I wrote around um, Practice Perfect, uh, a book by Doug Lamother and uh, a few other wonderful people. And the, the idea is, is that when we're trying to put these things in, in place, you can get caught up in it really quickly. And what happens quite often, you know, researchers talk about the idea of lethal mutations, and, and yes, they do happen. So what we need to be wary of is, this is the goal of what I'm trying to do with this specific strategy. What do I not want it to become? And, and therefore really draw lines around what we're doing. So, you know, real clear lines of demarcation to say, well, yeah, it's not going to go that way. It's not going to go that way. It has to stay on, on this track. And it's, it's not about having necessarily a narrow track. You know, you've got to have space to allow it to, to grow and evolve and, and link with other, th other parts of your practice. But it can't become something that it shouldn't be and therefore become 
almost like this huge sap on workload that just sits in the background, this huge inefficient bit of your practice that you haven't realized has, de- has developed. So one of the things that um, I've spoken to some people about that I've, that they, that I know that they're doing is they use that almost as, as a guide in like paired observation or observation trios where they, where they'll say, well, we're trying out this practice that that's that this, this strategy that's in Nimish's book. When we go and see each other doing it, we need to make sure that it's not doing that you know it, it's doing this part of it and not that part of it and i think that's where it's become really useful for people um where it really makes sure that people are maintaining the direction and the momentum of what they're trying to do and, and not drifting off in different directions mm. yeah it's pretty good it's that use of non-examples to really refine it isn't it and we don't do that enough with our te- we do it when we're teaching or we will tell the children the non-examples but we don't necessarily do it in our own practice we don't sort of say it, it is this but it isn't that <laughs> and then we end up- it, it, it's, it's really interesting because I, actually i started doing that in my own communication with staff so i'd say like i was writing this book during the return from covid when we came back in the june reopenings and and it was interesting because i thought well i'm sending out a schedule of like when uh, I, I believe staff will be able to work certain days um, and I know that there was lots of worry about stuff. And, and this is the point about something like using a non-example. Not only does it really make sure that you're, you're delivering the information you want, but it also can lower anxiety very quickly. So when we were going through that process of reopening, I know that people were information about, uh, you know, what, what, what days they were going to work, what students would be in, uh, what days certain students would be in a risk assessment every, everything else so i made it really clear to people well all i want is information about can you wait this day because we need to get that for what sorted out first before we get on to the to the, the side of how much how many staff are going to be on site and therefore what risk assessments is put in place and x y and z so that affected how i wrote emails to staff that affected that this, that whole idea of, of using examples and non-examples and making things really clear not only affected my communication with staff but also made it significantly better and therefore literally just dropped all anxiety out of stuff and they felt like we were in control of the situation so while it's really important in terms of um communicating it's also really important in terms of staff training and, and actually when we train staff to say well actually this this is what's what it says to be the effective way uh, and this is what could potentially take you in a different direction that's so great i mean i i was just i've been literally talking about that uh yesterday uh where in one of my, my work in, in a place um college in england where you know we've been trying to develop practice over a while but you, you feel like we've been trying to sort of promote ideas and then what's happening is that other things are creeping in which are not explicitly forbidden <laughs> but they're um so you know why would someone not realize to do it it's because it's not one of the things that we said people ought to do but so we need to be clearer about things which are really you know if you're doing this type of thing a, a case in point it would be five people making a group poster <laughs> to me is like a no-no because <laughs> there's not enough thinking there's not enough to do and someone is always saying has anyone got a red <laughs> rather than saying <laughs> as in red pen rather than what concepts am I trying to wrestle with in my schema building? But anyway, that's a whole other thing. But there's a filtering out why certain things are poor ideas and explaining them. Well, I, was doing some, oh, sorry, I was doing some training the other day with a, a large group, and I was trying to explain something that sounded potentially like learning styles or VAC, but wasn't. And I actually had one member of the group whose job it was to keep saying, it's not learning styles, it's not back. And I would say, right, Debbie, what's your message? Just remind me, it's not, it's not learning styles, it's not back. Because it's that business about 
making sure that you don't any nobody leaves with the wrong message even though you've tried to convey the right one really really well anyway you were saying Nimish sorry I wanted to ask I wanted to mention something if I can about motivation because I think it's such a theme I mean around that comes through uh in different ways and I feel like don't you feel like Marge does this really good thing of of taking motivation out of the realm of, sort of life goals and can I be bothered in that sense, but to being the fact that to motivate your brain to focus on a specific area of knowledge isn't something you can take for granted. And I, and I think that's a massive insight. Like you, you know, and you explain it super well, sort of, and then it links to the, the evaluate. So if I think I'm, if I think I've done it or I know it, I don't, I'm not motivated to apply effort, but if the evaluation process tells me, Oh gosh, no, I don't really know it. Then I'm motivated to challenge to, to fill that knowledge gap. And it's it's that thing of your brain sort of does stuff you don't like want it to. And I think that's so that resonates. And you're sort of much more forgiving of children, aren't you? Because you think they're not sort of feckless and lazy. They're just human. <laughs> they just it is hard to keep focused. I mean, don't you think that's a great reworking yeah. the motivate? A hundred percent because. There are two sides to motivate. And it's one of the things that um, we've been wrestling at, uh, wrestling with, sorry, at, at my school, where there's a whole idea of, of motivation, motivation that ties to habits and cues. And, and, and there's so much wonderful work in that area about, you know, if, if you set the conditions up in a certain way and you make sure that students have X happens and then Y happens, then, you know, th- then it leads to this process. That, that is one side of the motivation motivational process. But, but the side that Shimura discusses in huge detail is the, ho- the whole idea of how if students know why they're, where, why they're learning what they're learning, and if it has some sort of emotional resonance with them, and if it has this ability to almost make them think, oh, gosh, what next? Um, and if it has this, this almost like inherent curiosity with it that makes you think, wow, that is exciting and interesting. Students are willing to and, and therefore motivated to learn more. And I think that's what Shimura really taps into in terms of the strategies that he's trying to talk about. So where he talks about the idea of harnessing storytelling, the, the, one of the examples I've always talked about is, is, is like a, a real straightforward process that's got a lot of cause and effect in it, like um, the electric bell. So you know, electricity flows through it. So it becomes an electromagnet. So it pulls the arm over, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and when we, we use the idea of, that there's a real storytelling mentality to this. Students really want to know, well, oh, does that mean this? Or does that mean this? And therefore, not only are they sort of motivated to want to learn more, they'll start to go through that idea of the, the generate cycle, or always trying to generate their information for themselves and, and try to make predictions. And that shows how, how this isn't like a, a completely disconnected set of five principles. They, they are interwoven. And, and the, the three C's, as Shimura mentioned, like form a big part of that. So compare, contrast, and categorize. And I think what, what the, the motivation piece within, within Shimura's work does and, as a, and within the book does is show that actually the curriculum is a motivational tool and our strategies for delivering the curriculum are motivational tools as much as trying to get students into good habits are as well. So we can't just assume that habits will get to students in, in the way that we want to. Actually, the, the way we're delivering the curriculum and increasing the, the I think that the phrase that Shimura uses is expanding the, the spectrum of pleasure seeking experiences and pushing ourselves into new learning situations. I'll say, that, say that again. I want to hear that again. Expanding. So, so it says expanding the, the spectrum of pleasure uh, of pleasure seeking experiences, I believe is what it says. I think that's such a great phrase. It really talks yeah. about. 
I think I have to say, I think I think like, I, I wanted to just leave that sort of hanging there because I think that's kind of how we should sort of start wrapping up this episode. <laughs> yeah, it's such a great phrase. It really is. You've, you've expanded the uh, spectrum of pleasure seeking experiences. Emma, do you want to? Do you want? What have got? One final question for? Yeah, it was kind of a question slash comment because when I was reading the motivation section, I was kind of like air punching, going yes. Because it really decoupled this idea of motivation and fun. That somehow the medium through which you teach needs to actually be whiz bang pop all the time, and it's like edutainment. But actually, it really kind of got to grips with the fact that the inherent interest in the content is the mo- is what motivates and drives the children. You don't need to wrap it up in some kind of strange conflation with fun and. And you can have great fun and be absorbed and engaged and thoroughly motivated by what you're doing through the content itself, not having to do the biscuit Stonehenge and the chocolate rocks. And oh, other- kill joy, kill joy. <laughs> I am the fun police, Emma Turner, fun police. <laughs> well, look, we're going to have to bring it to a close. Honestly, I tell you what, one day I'd love to have a, a just a giant physics geek out with you, Nimish, talking oh, about definitely. it. Fantastic. So I'm going to flash the book again. Honestly, I, I'm very proud to be even slightly connected to this book. It's brilliant. Marge uh, Shimamura's model, uh, Marge, uh, a model of learning in action by Nimish Ladd. It's really great. And Nimish is brilliant to talk to you. You're so enthusiastic and you know, thank effervescent you. in the way you share your ideas. It's wonderful. So thank you to you. Thanks, Emma. And thanks, everyone, joining us in this episode. Welcome back to Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time.